Uh, We're going to be reading Judges uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. The men of Judah said to their relatives from the tribe of Simeon, Join with us to fight against the Canaanites, living in the territory allotted to us. Then we will help you conquer your territory. So the men of Simeon went with Judah. When the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. While at, while at Bezek, they encountered King Adonai Bezek and fought against him. And the Canaanites and Perizzites were defeated. Adonai Bezek escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my tables. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They took him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and captured it, killing all its people and setting the city on fire. Then they went down to fight the Canaanites living in the hill country with the Negev and the western foothills. Judah marched against the Canaanites in Hebron, formerly called Kariath Arba, defeating the forces of Shishai, Ahaman, and Tamai. From there, they went to fight against the people living in the town of Debir, formerly called Kariath Sefer. Caleb said, I will give my daughter, Aksa, in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kariath Sefer. Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, was the one who, who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. When Aksa married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what's the matter? She said, let me have another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now, please give me springs of water too. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. When the tribe of Judah left Jericho, the city of Palms, the Kenites, who were descendants of Moses, father-in-law, traveled with them into the wilderness of Judah. They settled among the people there, near the town of Arad in the Negev. Then Judah joined with Simeon to fight against the Canaanites living in Zephath. And they completely destroyed the town, so the town was named Hormah. In addition, Judah captured the towns of Geza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, along with their surrounding territories. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. The town of Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had promised, and Caleb drove out the people living there, who were descendants of the three sons of Enoch. The tribe of Benjamin, however, failed to drive out the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. So to this day, the the Jebusites live in Jerusalem among the people of Benjamin. Uh, This is uh, the word of God. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the privilege it is of being known by you and for the joy it is to hear you speak to us. And our prayer tonight, Father, is that you would do just that for us 
and for your glory through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you get to my age, you can be tempted to talk about the good old days. Back when things were simpler and slower and just generally nicer. Is that right? <laughs> but in reality, we, we know that things these days are actually probably better than the past, I think, you know. Things are, we've got efficiencies, we've got levels of comfort, and we've got all sorts of things in life that, that are better than the past, although there are some good things about the good old days, of course. But I reckon as Christians, we can be even more tempted to look back on the past and to think about what church was like in the good old days. Everyone, it seemed, used to go to church. And I've heard a story that if a minister was driving along on a Sunday and they saw someone playing sport on a Sunday, they'd stop the car, roll down the window and say, you, get to church now. And they'd say, yes, and off they'd go. And I understand that the minister would walk around the suburb, knock on the doors of all of the Anglicans, and if they hadn't been to church for a while, hand them the church bulletin and then say, can I have the, t the collection, please? And they'd dutifully give it to them. There you go, James. What do you reckon about that? <laughs> Our treasurer is delighted. So pretty much every respectable person would be in church. And the numbers of churchgoers, percentage-wise, was, I don't know, you can look into it, 20, 30 percent, I don't know, lots, a big percentage. The good old days just seemed so good. And, and the values of the mainstream society seemed to pretty much match up with the values of the Bible. And so you can say, we are a nation that has the Judeo-Christian values. And there's not going to be that kind of clash that we see so vividly as we do today. There's something about the good old days when it comes to the church that, that sort of warms our heart a bit. Now, I wasn't around when it was quite like that. Some of you may know someone who perhaps was around like that. But even so, I think it, there's a sense where there's a bit of a starry-eyed rear vision perspective really when you look at this it's not quite like that there were many people who came along to church in the 40s and 50s and whenevers who came to church but really were not christians in their, they didn't have a personal relationship with jesus but they were just sort of in the building and that was kind of what you did but even if the good old days weren't quite as good as they look in our rose-colored rearview mirrors you can't deny that things have really changed a lot in the last 50, 60 years or more. And the decline didn't happen overnight. It was a gradual process. And it's a pattern we see time and time again. The original generation believes the gospel. Then the next generation only assumes the gospel. And the generation after that denies it. And after a while the damage happens and it is disastrous. In the Old Testament book of Judges, which we're going to look at over nine weeks, we witness the same kind of decline from faithfulness to unfaithfulness. God's people went from the good old days to the bad old days and it all unravels before our eyes. It all sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? You're thinking... You really want me to come to church for nine weeks to hear this depressive news about the life of God's people? 
Well, I want to tell you there are a lot of really good reasons for doing so. See, sometimes when things go wrong, we can learn how to avoid the problems in the future. It's what air crash investigators do after a plane crashes, or pathologists do after an autopsy. It's like, we've got a dead plane, a dead body. What went wrong? Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. In a way, we will be looking at the time of the judges and seeing what is it that they did that was wrong, that we can learn to avoid. And so we will then learn from the mistakes of the judges. We'll learn from the mistakes of the judges. But the other thing is that we're going to learn that, that even though human sin and weaknesses are everywhere, it doesn't mean that God's not going to carry out his will. Nothing's going to stop God doing what he intends to do. But even more than that, we're going to see in the next nine weeks that God's ultimate plan for humanity is going to be fulfilled. And this is revealed specifically in Jesus Christ. There are all these sorts of echoes that we'll read in, in Judges that will be seen fully in the life of Jesus that I'll point out along the way. So with all of that in mind, let's jump into the first verse. Judges chapter 1 verse 1 which says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? Well, something very, very serious has happened in the life of God's people, and that is that Joshua has died. Joshua has died. He was a very, very important leader. He's the guy who led God's people out of the desert into the promised land. Moses didn't cut it, but Joshua was the man. Joshua was used by God to fulfill all the promises that were made to Abraham. And now this great leader, Joshua, who brought together the people, who inspired them, who led them in a remarkable way, is gone. Sometimes when a great leader dies, it brings an instability. Some parts of the world, when the leader dies, they go into martial law just to make sure that the place doesn't erupt in riots. Sometimes when a leader dies, though, the people end up being stronger than they were before. And that is because they have been well-trained and well-inspired, so they keep going in that same direction. Which way is going to work out for God's people? Are they going to spiral into chaos, or are they going to go and get stronger and stronger? Well, we will see in due course. And as we do, right at the start, from verse 1, it starts quite promising, really. God's people, the Israelites, need to make a very important strategic decision. And they decide to ask the Lord. That's a good plan. They could have convened a council and got together and said, let's have a meeting and work it out. They could have chosen a leader and said, hey, you, just tell us what we need to do. But instead they said, we've got to ask God. They chose directly to speak to God for guidance. They asked God directly for guidance. I wonder if that's something that you do when you've got a big decision to make. Maybe you go through a life and there are Big decisions and there are bigger decisions and there are some little decisions. But you know those certain decisions that you know that whether you take door A or door B, option one or option two, it will define the rest of your life. Do you marry that person or not? Do you, do you select that particular career or that career? Or do you choose to travel or not? Or do you, do you, all these different things, you can come up with all the different ideas and the different combinations and permutations. Do you come to God and say... I'm handing it over to you. Do you seek the Lord's guidance? 
That's what God's people did here in verse 1 of chapter 1, and it was right on the money. They want to know in particular how they were going to finally wipe out the enemy from the land God has given to them. And they want to know which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites. Within the whole of the nation of Israel, there were 12 different tribes. You think of Australia, right? We've got, we've got a whole of Australia and we've got eight different states and territories. They've all got their own little identities. They're a little bit different to each other. And yet they're all Aussies. It's a little bit like that with the tribes of Israel. And so they all get together and they say, Lord, which one of the 12 of us should go in to Cana and knock out these enemies? Well, God has a direct answer for them. Verse 2, the Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. We don't know how it is that God spoke to them. It's probably not with the Urum and the Thurum, which is kind of like a, a sort of a uh, you know, throw of the dice sort of thing. It's, it seems that it was so significant that the Lord spoke in a way that allowed them to hear his voice. Not sure the details, but this is what we've got here. And God very clearly in this state says, you've got to send Judah. They've got to be the ones. And he promises victory to Judah. He promises victory to Judah. Imagine what it would have been like in the Second World War if you were in the military headquarters planning D-Day and God told you that you would certainly win against the Germans. Imagine what it would be like. I, I watched a movie a month or two ago on Churchill and in those moments before they had D-Day, there was real uncertainty. Churchill was portrayed in this movie as, as being terribly nervous that there would be mass catastrophe and that hundreds of thousands of soldiers would die. And there's got this uncertainty. But imagine if they're there plotting what will they do and who will they send and how they'll go, knowing for certain they would win. Be easy to make your decisions, wouldn't you? Because you knew they were going to work. It'd be hard not to be arrogant, I reckon, because you're thinking, I just know that we're the winners. I don't know what feeling it would give, but that's what these guys heard from the Lord. Send in Judah and they will win 100%. But it doesn't mean, even with this clear direction from the Lord and this confidence, that they sit back and just become complacent. Instead, they make it a strategic decision. Verse 3, the men of Judah said to their relatives from the tribe of Simeon, so one tribe says to another tribe, join with us to fight against the Canaanites living in the territory allotted to us. Then we'll help you conquer your territory. And so the men of Simeon went with Judah. So the two, tribe, two of the tribes of Israel decide to work together in battle. Kind of like, you know, imagine if, if Queensland and the Northern Territory said, hey, let's work together as we go and attack, I don't know, Indonesia or whatever it is that the Lord's told us he'll give us. We'll work together. And then Northern Territory, you help Queensland, and then when we're sorted out, we'll help you. And, and away we, it's kind of that sort of thing here. Uh, any tribal rivalry that might be there, you know, state against state, mate against mate, is, is not an issue. They're in it together. And they've worked to do what God's promised they would do. And this is the outcome, verse 4. When the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. 
the Lord gave them the victory as promised. The Lord gave them the victory as promised. 10,000 people wiped out in one battle. It's a lot of people to be killed at one time, isn't it? But what is more surprising, I think, as we read this, is the idea that the Lord would direct his people to go into a country and commit genocide. I don't know if you're reading this, you think, yeah, that's just what God does. I'm hoping when you read this, you think, that just doesn't seem like what the normal Christian life is like. It's really, what they're doing is sort of what Islamic State have been doing around the Middle East, isn't it, really? Go in, wipe them out, and utterly destroy them. Or maybe a thousand years ago when the Crusaders went around and they massacred Muslims in Jerusalem and other places. You know, you just, you f- I hope you feel a bit unnerved about this, as I do. Be very clear, this is not the way that God works today. We haven't got our three Canucks out here from Canada to say, we're going to conquer Jamboree together. Okay, get out your weapons. We'll start down there. That's not the way we do evangelism today. You may have noticed. There's no physical land that we need to claim and defend. You know, God has given us everything south of the river. Let's go. You know, it's not like that. Today, we love and we pray for our enemies. It's pretty different, isn't it? It's, imagine what it would be like in that earlier bit. You know, I am giving you, Judah, I'm sending you in to pray for 10,000 converts. No, it's pretty different to that. But when Jesus came, he said, pray for your enemies and love, those, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we cope with this? I've got to say, I, I feel a bit uncomfortable about it. And that's even though I've been a Christian for much of my life and I've been reading the Old Testament for a fair part of that as well, where there's been this killing genocide sort of stuff. If it's the first time you've come across, you might be thinking, what am I doing here? This is too weird. This group of people are psycho. Because how could they love a book that says this genocide stuff in it? Well, hang in there because it's worth seeing the big picture first. And this is something we see in verse 5 and 6, which is also quite remarkable for all sorts of reasons. While at Bezek, they encountered King Adonai Bezek and fought against him. And the Canaanites and Perizzites were defeated. Adonai Bezek escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Really? It just sounds pretty barbaric, doesn't it? You can sort of understand that God's people might just put them all out of their misery and kill them in a big, huge, you know, horrible massacre thing. But to dismember the king deliberately... You think, what on earth is happening here? How could they justify capturing the enemy king and cutting off his thumbs and big toes? It's horrible. Why would God want that to happen to this king? Well, the answer comes from the dismembered king himself. Listen to what he says in the next verse. Adonai Bezek said, I once had... 70 kings with their thumbs and big, cu- big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. And they took him to Jerusalem and he died there. This is important information. It turns out that this king, who no longer has thumbs or big toes and has been disgraced in this way, 
accepts this brutal act as a punishment from God and a just punishment from God. And not that it's just a random chance that he happened to come across some Israelites who weren't very nice to him. It was like, this is a punishment from God himself. And this is kind of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is the justice way that restricted people from going above and beyond the equivalent to the, to the degree of the, of the crime. But even so, it's only 170th, isn't it? This guy recognises that he's been paid back by God for this horrific act. And this is a clue as to why God would instruct the people to go in and do this to that nation. And that is that God is using his own people to deliver his punishment. This helps me a little bit get my head around this divine genocide. All those people there, the 10,000 of them, hated God. And they hated God's people. And that's just not the way to go. Because God created all people and rightly should be worshipped and honoured. And it is the only way that people should live. People should love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength and all their mind. But instead they have, they have rejected him and rejected his rule over their life and they deserve to be punished. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth because they've willingly disobeyed God and hated him and his rule. I find this a little bit easier to come to terms with, but still a bit hard, to be honest. But I think that's a problem with me, not with God. I think I mis misunderstand and downplay the severity of rejecting the Creator, who rightfully has a rule over our lives, and that's for everyone. I think we today, as we sort of breathe the oxygen of this land that has departed so much from the Bible, we, we, we really think that there are multiple ways in which a person can get to know God, if there really is a God at all. And so what is it for us to judge a person of devout faith of a different religion than ours? But that's not the way of the Bible. There is only one God. All the other gods are fakes. The true God made us all and demands that we honour him and worship him. And rightly so. And so if people do not do that, then they rightly will be punished by God. We are all under God's wrath. I'm under God's wrath. You're under God's wrath by nature. We all deserve God's punishment. We all deserve God's punishment. And it's when you understand the depth and the size and the might of this wrath upon us that we rightfully deserve that the substitutionary atonement of Christ Jesus, the, the swapping our sins for his sinlessness and taking that on the cross, it just makes Easter so much bigger and so much greater that the wrath that we deserve, that we amongst the 10,000 who are wiped out there at Bezek or should have been, had that wrath taken upon the Son of God himself. Well, now we return to the action, pick up the pace a little bit, and we see that the conquest continues. Verses 8 to 10. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and captured it, killing all its people and setting the city on fire. And then they went down to fight the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. Judah marched against the Canaanites in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, defeating the forces of Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. 
The con conquest continues. They capture Jerusalem, Negev and Hebron and they wipe out the people like God said. He is blessing them with victory. And then they went to fight against another city and all the men were given a special incentive for bravery. Let me read on, verses 11 and 12. They went to fight against the people living in the town of Debir, formerly called kiriath Sepha. Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksar in marriage to the one who attacks and captures kiriath Sepha. Uh, the men of Judah would have an extra bonus prize for being brave. Uh, I'm not quite sure how she thinks about it, but anyway, that's the way it was. And we read who won the prize. Verse 13, that Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. And so Aksar became Othniel's wife. Congratulations. God's people enjoy a blessing and a wedding. A royal wedding, really. But before that happens, we read that the bride encouraged her fiancé to negotiate a top dollar dowry. It's like, okay... You win me as a prize. Let's make a thing of this. So we read in verse 14, When Aksa married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What's the matter? She said, Let me have another gift. You've already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me springs of water too. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Lots of land and lots of irrigation. Ticking all the boxes. Everything's happy. God's people are blessed, Othniel's blessed, Axa's blessed, everyone's a winner. The Lord is blessing his people with land and with, with all sorts of things, including this one happy couple with their own possession of that land. Well, things continue to go well. So far, so good. I'm going to skip a few verses, but we read that they kept on the capturing and conquesting. They went into Zephath, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron. The news was all good and they could see that God was giving them what he promised. Uh, on Thursday in my year three and four scripture class, the whole topic of promises was, was on show. And I said to the students, how can you know if somebody is trustworthy enough for them to keep their promises? And after a bit of dialogue back and forth, and like, sit down, sit down. Sit. What are you doing out of your seat? A fair bit of that. Uh, the class recognised that if somebody did what they said they do a lot, then they'd be trustworthy. Well, I said, that, that's fair enough. Uh, and I said to them, imagine if I said to you that I was going to give you a sticker at the end of our lesson. Uh, if I did that, how would you feel about that? Oh, I'd feel that you were trustworthy. Oh, what if I don't? Well, I'm not trustworthy, yeah. And um, I remember to give them a sticker at the end. Uh, but they got the idea that, that if you are reliable in keeping your promises, then you expect the next promise to actually come true. And I said, that is far more the case with God, who always keeps his promises. This is what God's people are experiencing. God is totally keeping his promises in every way. God totally keeps his promises in every way. We've learned a new song recently, The Lord is My Salvation. And uh, there's a great, great uh, verse in it. Let me read it to you. You've, you've sung it a few times, but it says, And when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise, he will call me home. The Lord is my salvation. 
It's terrific, terrific verse. We can sing that with confidence because we know that God is trustworthy. We know that he keeps his promises. But sadly, people doubt him. And that's what we're about to see in the last little bit of this passage. Even though there have been all of these ways in which God has kept his promises and been faithful, they don't really believe him. The decline begins, verse 19. The Lord was with the people of Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. They've got some military technology that freaked out God's people. God's people were scared by the enemy's technology. They saw the iron chariots and it freaked them out. You know, they, they might say, look, it doesn't matter that they've got these huge big iron chariots because the Lord will keep his promises. And the others might say, well, that's easy to say, isn't it? But have you seen how big and scary they are? I reckon, why don't we just take the hill country and we'll leave the flat stuff for those guys. Deal? Yep, seems legit. Off you go. Bad idea. They have forgotten God's faithfulness and they have been chicken. And they lost the battle because they lost their courage in the Lord. And the pattern continued. Verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin, however, failed to drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And so to this day, the Jebusites live in Jerusalem among the people of Benjamin. And so here we, we see time and time again a pattern now. The enemies of God coexisted with God's people. That's not the plan. The plan is that it would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and none of those people would be around who willingly and with a large fist were saying, we hate God. But instead they're now coexisting. Then we read how the descendants of Joseph performed in battle. Verse 22, they attacked the town of Bethel and the Lord was with them, which sounds good, but something unusual happens. Verse 23 and 24, they sent men to scout out Bethel, which was formerly known as Luz, remember that. They confronted a man coming out of the town. They're about to go in, smash the place up, this guy runs out, and they say to this guy, whoa, 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 you got a minute, mate. Show us a way into the town and we'll have mercy on you. Okay. Uh, it, it sounds like a good idea, really. I mean, smart move strategically. They offer the man mercy if they'll show him a secret way into the town. And what happened, verse 25, is that he showed them a way in and they killed everyone in the town except that man and his family. It sounds a lot like God has given his people victory and he's also given this non-Israelite person a taste of mercy. Who does it remind you of in the book of Joshua? There was a lady called Rahab. Is it just a little bit like that? God's people were about to enter Jericho and some of the soldiers befriended Rahab, if you know what I mean. And she then protected them from the enemies and Rahab was shown mercy and she became an Israelite. Is this what happens here? No. Verse 26 Later, the man moved to the land of the Hittites where he built a town and he named it Luz Mark II, which is its name to this day. It's like, I am going to rebuild the old city that stood against God, the old city with its worship 
temples and altars and all that stuff, I'm not going to join you guys. I'm going to continue to keep things separate. And ultimately, the man from Luz accepted mercy but rejected God. It's the opposite of what happened with Rahab. But why is that the case? Well, it's the deal that God made with God's people made with this man. What did they say? They said, show us a way into the town and we will have mercy on you. We'll have mercy on you. The word in the original language, mercy, is the same word that is often translated the steadfast love. If you want to get really nerdy, it's the Hebrew word chesed, which is, which is about this covenantal love between God and his people. We sing about it, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's a covenant word. It does mean mercy, it does mean kindness, it definitely means those things. But he's basically saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you so that you will then be able to help us get into this place that we were trying to attack. They have made a covenant with God, who's made a covenant with them, and now they're making a covenant with somebody else. It's a bad idea. They lacked trust in God's promises to the point they were willing to make a new covenant with an enemy. And the result is that this man doesn't actually leave and repent of his past and join God's people. He rebuilds the old anti-God way of life. There's no kind of, you know, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. None of that. It's like, thanks for helping me out. I'm out of here. It's like that in life, isn't it? Some people enjoy God's blessings, but they ignore his love. And that is what's on show here. They've enjoyed God, he's enjoyed God's blessings, but ignored his love. Well, the downhill spiral continues. We're going to zoom along. Verses 27 and 28, we read, here's, a, here's an example of it. The tribe of Manasseh, that's a different one of the 12, failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tarnak, Dor, Iblium, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. We'd like to stay, if you don't mind. Radio. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. That's not the plan. And we see the same thing in verse 29, in verse 30, verse 31, verse 36. All these places, they didn't drive out um, Giza or Kitron and Nahal and all these other places as well. Over and over again it says, they failed to drive out, they failed to drive out, they failed to drive out. Why? Because they failed to trust God. And ultimately, they lost heart and they failed to drive out their enemies. Can you see how things have spiralled down? Under Joshua, it was great. And they said to God, what do we do? They said, Judah, you go in there and I will certainly give it to you. And he certainly did. And now we've got this mess here. And so in the last few verses, we see that God is now going to intervene in a spectacular way. Chapter 2, verse 1, we read that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, this is God's talking to them directly in a big way. He says, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. I made a promise with you. I showed you mercy. And then verse 2, he says, for your part, you were not to make any 
covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? Why did you do this? It sort of reminds me of what it was like when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And they sewed fig leaves together to hide their nakedness. And God says, who told you you were naked? It's like, there's a problem here, isn't there? Why did you not trust me? Can't you remember the way I, I took you out of Egypt? Out of slavery. And I gave you the land. And all you had to do was trust me. The Lord kept his promise, but they disobeyed him. They made promises with the enemy, just like the man from Luz. They disobeyed God's command. And the angel says, why? What was going through your head? What on earth were you thinking? The consequences of this are tragic. Verse 3 we read, So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land, says the Lord. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. God's people broke the deal, and God is going to punish them for breaking the deal. The impact of sin is painful and disastrous. The impact of sin is painful and disastrous. And God's people knew how bad this sentence really was. In the last two verses of today's passage, we read that when the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called this place Bokim, which means weeping. And they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. They cried and cried and cried and cried and wailed and howled and like, how have we moved so far from the Lord? Remember the good old days. They wept and wept and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord thinking that might solve the problem. But really, we know from the Bible that the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's what he wants. See, they've gone now from conquest to chaos. They've left the good old days behind and their disobedience has major consequences right now for their life. And it seems there's little hope for them anymore. But there is. God could have said, I'm sick of you guys. Wiping you out, off you go. But he didn't. And for them and for us, even in our sin... God offers mercy. We don't get what we deserve. We deserve to be like those places that were wiped out utterly by God. And yet he has shown us mercy. We don't get what we deserve. And that is seen in what happens when a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Remember what was the tribe that was to go in first? Judah. That tribe had a particular descendant and so in the final book of the new testament in the book of revelation god's people were gathered around the scroll that was bringing them life and they're weeping it's another weeping time how are we and who is worthy to open up the scroll and verse 5 of chapter 5 of revelation one of the 24 elders said to me stop weeping look 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. See, hope comes from the lion of Judah. Hope comes from the lion of Judah. And they sing this song to the lion of Judah, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered. Not the people of Cana, not God's people who disobeyed him, but you, the Lion of Judah, were slaughtered. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. From chaos comes conquest, and from conquest comes grace. And our hope in Christ is sure, for God keeps his promises, even when we fail. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that your mercy is so great for us, even though we have disobeyed you. And we thank you, Jesus, for willingly going to the cross and being slaughtered on our behalf. And we pray that we, in response to this, would act in a life of worship towards you. That we would give our lives since you have given yours for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.